Barry Payne and his wife, who's not able to be here today because she's a teacher at Genesis um, Christian School, um, are the <coughs> Queensland representatives for International Nepal Fellowship. And uh, towards the end of last year, they spent about five weeks or so uh, in that country and um, have a growing heart for the people of Nepal. And uh, uh, Barry has made it, made it possible for Ben to come and share with us today. Is there anything you want to say, Barry? No. He's a man of few words, so I'll carry on, but not for too long. Well, the church in Nepal is a fairly young church. It was planted around 1952. I remember one of the key ladies in, the, in that time named Jean Radden uh, speaking on a couple of occasions. Um, yeah, she didn't forget what she said. Um, but the church is severely persecuted in ver to various degrees but it's still growing, and it's growing to an amazing rate, and we're so glad. But it's organisations like the International Nepal Fellowship and people like um, Ben and others who have uh, been instrumental in the hands of God to bring, up, bring about that growth in the church, to bring medical aid and education and justice to these needy people. And I think it's important for us as a church in Australia to know what God is doing elsewhere. And uh, today we have the opportunity of hearing about what God is doing in Nepal, in this tiny landlocked country. And uh, Ben, rather, our speaker today, with his wife and family, have served in Nepal. And uh, he'll tell us about that in a moment. But he's now the CEO of International Nepal Fellowship. So let's welcome Ben Thurley as he comes to the platform. Thank you, Ben. He's a big fella, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Lay hands on no man suddenly. <laughs> I want to pray for Ben. Thanks. Father, we thank you that Ben's able to be with us today. Thank you, Lord, for his heart for you, his heart for your people, his heart for your church. And we want to pray that as he shares today from his own walk with you, our own hearts will be strangely warm and blessed. We pray that we'll take to our hearts, Lord, and put into practice whatever you put whatever you say to us through him. But bless him now and bless us through him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, everybody, and thank you for the welcome. It's a joy to be here. Um, and I must apologise. I uh, prepared a, a small PowerPoint presentation, just some photos of Nepal and some of the people from Nepal, then very cleverly left it at home this morning. So you could have been looking at some of the most beautiful places and some of the most beautiful people on the face of God's good earth, but instead it's just me. Um, hopefully I can do some justice in my words to Nepal, even though you won't have the visuals to, um, to picture it. But I'm sure your imaginations at least are up to the task. Um, yeah, my family and I lived and worked in Nepal from 2008 till 2012. Um, young family, so I have two boys. Gabe now is 16, but he was five at the time that we went. And Jake is just starting high school. He's 12. He was five months when we went. So it was challenging for all of us, particularly for Lyndall, who was tireder than any human being has a right to be. But um, God was good, um, sustained us through that time, um, brought great joy and great learning. Um, I'll tell you, uh, you'll hear little bits of our story as we go, but I really want to focus on 
Nepal. So for those of you who've never been, one, you should go. It's amazing. Um, two, it's a tiny, tiny little country, less than half the size of Victoria, um, sandwiched in between China to the north and India pretty much every other direction around it. Um, the highest mountains on the earth uh, in the northern kind of part of the country and kind of uh, plains, low plains with lots of forest uh, and open fields on the south bordering India, and in the middle, hills. Uh, and these hills themselves are pretty remarkable. When we first arrived in Kathmandu, it was um, still quite cloudy, post-monsoon, so the rain had mostly stopped, but it was still very cloudy around the valley. So all you could see were the hills that surround the city of Kathmandu. Kathmandu is not super high, it's um, about 2,000 metres, but by Australian standards, obviously that's pretty high. And the hills, sort of three, three and a half thousand metres. So we'd get up in the morning and Gabe, who was five at the time, would look out and he'd say, oh dad, these mountains, they're amazing. And I said, well, yep, um, just remember for the Nepalis, these are just the hills. Um, you know, if you, if you took one of these hills and plonked it in the middle of Australia, for sure, it would be a mountain. But uh, wait until you see the real mountains. And day after day, while the clouds still hung around, he would say, oh, these mountains, Dad, they're amazing. I said, yep, just you wait. And sure enough, a few weeks later, when the clouds finally cleared and we got a view uh, to the Himalayas, um, he said, oh, okay, these mountains are amazing. Um, and as uh, Brian said, a church... Um, founded around 1952. Maybe there were a handful of Christians in the country before that, before that day. But it was a very closed country. It's a majority Hindu kingdom. So a country smaller than Victoria, now almost 30 million people living there. Um, it's less crowded than you might imagine because even though the surface area, you know, measured east to west and north to south isn't huge, if you count the surface area of up and down, there's still quite a lot of uh, land. Um, and in 1952, the country opened up for the first time, and a group of uh, missionaries and Nepali Christians who'd been living on the border uh, of Nepal and India, who'd been praying for the chance to go back into Nepal and share good news of Christ um, with Nepali people, returned to Nepal. They made way, their way through the jungles of the Terai, they made their way up to Pokhara, kind of the largest city in the centre of Nepal, and they founded uh, a medical mission. At the time, it was called Nepal Evangelistic Band. It's now known as International Nepal Fellowship. So I'm acutely aware that I follow in the footsteps of some amazing pioneers of faith. Um, uh, and it's a real privilege to represent International Nepal Fellowship. So they made their way to Pokhara and they set up a clinic, the Shining Hospital, um, because it was made from tin. And so when the sun shone, it glinted and shone. Uh, could be seen from a long way away. And they began reaching out and um, serving some of the poorest and most marginalised people in that part of Nepal, particularly leprosy patients. And leprosy, kind of think of it as a disease from biblical times, it still exists in our world, sadly, uh, although it's on the way and we could actually eradicate it. Uh, in Nepal, it's still not yet completely eliminated. And as in biblical times, so too in Nepal, people with leprosy experience a huge amount of uh, stigma and discrimination. There's not a lot of awareness of what the disease is, about the bacteria that causes it. People are afraid. Uh, and you probably get a sense of that with the news of what's happening in the world at the moment. That's how people feel about leprosy. If I come near to somebody with leprosy, I'll contract it. And leprosy is very treatable. 
If it's addressed early, if the medication is given early, actually it doesn't need to cause disability. The harm, the stigmatising disability that it causes, that can be prevented. And it's not very uh, transmissible. I have some very good friends in Kathmandu and in Pokhara with leprosy. Uh, and I'm very happy to eat meals with them, to hold hands with them, to converse with them, because it's not, it's not very uh, transmissible. But yet there's such fear and such stigma. I'm going to share uh, a couple of stories related to uh, leprosy. It's just why I, I share this as background. So the church in 1952, virtually no people. The church today, the estimates are a bit hard um, the Christians in Nepal are trying to work out how can they get an accurate count because according to the census, roughly 1.5% of the population are Christians and that would be amazing. Even that would be amazing. That's 350,000, 400,000 people in a majority Hindu nation. 85% of the population are Hindu, then Buddhist and Muslim, Christian, other religions. So even if 1.5% is it, from zero to 1.5% of the population in 50, 60 years is remarkable growth. Um, sorry, yeah, 60, 70 years. Uh, but most of the religious minorities, Christians included, think that the census actually undercounts uh, the number of religious minorities. One, because people might themselves not be willing to um, affirm to a government official what their faith is, because it might open them up to persecution and discrimination. And two, because the government itself has a vested interest in maintaining the sense that it is a Hindu nation, uh, and they don't necessarily want to acknowledge kind of the growth of other uh, religions, particularly Christianity. So it may be as high as 900,000 or a million people. Three, roughly 3% of the population is the best estimates I've come across. So from zero in 1952, or close to, to maybe 900,000 or a million people in 2020. So remarkable growth, driven by the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, by the dynamism of the church in Nepal. And I want to share just a couple of stories about how that has happened, uh, and INF's part in that, and um, then how you can be involved. So I met a man called Grishma Parajuli, who's a church pastor now in Pokhara. He pastors Nyagaon Church, which is very close to one of the hospitals that, Green, that INF runs now called Green Pastures Hospital. Serves people with leprosy um, and other forms of general disability, spinal cord injury. Uh, Nepal is a very hilly place, lots of places where you can fall. Most people get their firewood by climbing a tree, cutting down the branches. Most people get their fodder for their goats or animals, the same method. You climb a tree, find a branch with leaves, you cut it down. So every, every day, there are people uh, having spinal cord injury from falls. So Green Pastures really focuses on disability, spinal cord injury, leprosy. Um, they have an ear disease center. Uh, they work with um, kids with cerebral palsy. So a really wonderful ministry to some of the poorest, most marginalized people. Because very often in Nepal, people who suffer that kind of disability are viewed as cursed. That God or the gods have cursed them and so people with disability might be hidden away. They might be uh, tied to a bed um, so that they don't harm themselves or wander off and because the families are busy and stressed. They might be abused. I was in one village that INF had been working in 
And one of the profound changes they said had come because of INF's work with them to understand disability, the ability to care for kids with disability, one of the profound changes they said was that they no longer, oh sorry, they now call everybody in the community by name, first name, Trevor, Brian, Barry, Ben, instead of what they had previously done, which is somebody with a disability was just referred to by a derogatory name for their disability. Hey, cripple. Hey, spastic. Lame kid. The difference for them in coming to understand through the ministry of Christians that every person was created in the image of God and had dignity and value and the way they started to include them then uh, in their family, in their community, uh, was a beautiful, powerful thing. So that's the focus of Green Pastures Hospital on disability work. And there was a young man, uh, Grishma Parajuli. He's now a, a pastor, but he is bo was born into a Brahmin family. So the highest caste in the Hindu caste system. So his family were wealthy, relatively, well-educated, um, well-respected in their community. His dad was a high school principal. His, father ha his grandfather had been a Brahmin priest. So very well-respected, high caste, high status people. And Grishma, when he was studying at school, and this was the early 80s, he, um, he would be sitting on his uh, porch doing his homework. No electricity, no phones, so he's out in the sunshine doing his homework. And patients, leprosy patients, on their way to green pastures would pass by their house. And this was in the day before mobile phones existed or email existed, or even in Pokhara, very few landlines existed. So there was one landline in the hospital, but that was it. Um, in that part of Pokhara. And so when the patients wanted to send news to their family about what was happening for them, they had to write a letter. But they were illiterate. So passing by this educated Hindu teenager, they would say, um, would you write a letter for us? And he would write a letter to their family and they would send it. And of course, when it came back, they couldn't read the letter, so they'd ask Grishma to translate the letter that came back from their family. And so he did this. And the hospital um, staff got to know him a little bit because they knew he was helping the patients out. Uh, and he got to know some of the hospital staff. And then after a little while, um, one or two of the patients said to Grishma that in the hospital, the doctors, expat doctors and Nepali doctors and the nurses were treating patients who were Christian or patients who converted better than they were treating the Hindu patients or the patients who didn't convert. That if you converted, they gave you kind of first-class special preferential treatment, and if you didn't, yeah, they still treated you. You got medicine, you got, you know, what you needed, but they actually treated you quite badly. And he became furious. He said he was a proud Hindu boy, and he was furious at this idea that these Christians would discriminate against Hindus and give preference to Christians and try to use the medical treatment to convert people. And so he went to the chief district officer, who is the highest government official in the district, and he said, I've heard that this is happening in Green Pastures Hospital. Um, I want to bring a complaint against these people. And the chief district officer said, well, that's fine. Uh, if this is happening, it's, it's a very bad thing, but I can't just bring a complaint. You, you need to tell me who are the people who are doing this. Who are the leaders responsible for this? If you can go and get me their names, and bring me a list of their names, then I can take action. And so Grishma went along to the hospital, and he went along to the hospital fellowship that met 
uh, in the hospital on a weekly basis. And he went along to the church, not Nigaon at that time, Ramgat Church in Pokhara, to meet some of the Christians who were involved in the hospital, to take the names of the leaders. And the hospital staff were really happy when Grishma joined, you know, came along to the fellowship because they knew this, this kid and they knew that he'd been helping out the, the patients and they, were, they knew he was a Hindu, they knew he was a Brahmin, but they were just happy that he was joining them. So they welcomed him and were very open and warm. And at one point, somebody gave him a Bible and he said, he said, no, I, I don't want your Bible. I said, no, no, you, you should take it. Um, there's, no, there's no disadvantage for you. If, you. if you read it and you believe what's written in it, you'll be saved. And if you read it and you don't believe, well, you'll still learn something. You'll have greater knowledge and greater understanding. So, you know, win-win, I guess. And he said, all right, well, I'll, I'll take it. He said, but I want you to know, I'll never believe that your God is a living God because I know that your God is a dead God. So I will take it, but, but I'll never believe in your God. I said, well, that's fine. And, and we'll pray for you. And he said, well, I, I don't want you to pray for me, but again, you're praying to a dead God, so it doesn't matter. You can pray if you want to pray. You know how this story is going to end, right? I don't even really have to tell you how it ends. You know he's a pastor now. But uh, so Grishma went away uh, and he began reading the scriptures and he continued going along to the church gatherings and the, the fellowship that met in the hospital and he watched how they treated the patients and a few things he said happened. The first thing is he learned that there was no discrimination, that the Christian doctors and Christian nurses, expat and Nepali alike, were treating every patient with love and care and compassion. And he saw them reaching out to touch and hold and comfort people who had been expelled from their families. Leprosy patients who, once their diagnosis had been confirmed, had never again been touched even by their own parents. And here were doctors who were obviously treating their wounds, so really getting very up close with um, some quite uh, significant and uh, disabling injuries, but also holding them when they needed comfort, reaching out to them. And he was so impressed by the love that he realised actually the complaint that had been made wasn't right. He said he started reading the Bible he opened it up. It was just a New Testament, actually. He opened it up at Matthew and he started reading. And he got about five or six chapters in. He got to the Sermon on the Mount. And he realized he loved Jesus. That the, the Jesus he was meeting in the scripture, he wanted to follow. So when Grishma tells his story, he said the three things that changed his mind about Christianity and changed his heart and drew him to God were... The word of God, meeting Jesus in scripture, the prayers of the church, the people who had gathered together and prayed for him, and the love that he observed and experienced Christians sharing in practical ways with um, some of the poorest, most vulnerable people in Nepal. I think that's a pretty good summary for me of what makes mission. The power of God in prayer, words of life shared and demonstrations of God's love, practical, generous outpouring of God's uh, love flowing through us. So Grishma came to faith. And when he told his family he'd become a Christian, they said, well, you have a choice. You stay a Christian or you stay in our family. 
you can't do both. And he said, but I, I don't want to leave the family, but I must follow Jesus. I said, well, you've made your choice then. And he was forced out of his family at age 16. Just the clothes he was wearing, the Bible he'd been given. He was welcomed in by a group of Christians in Pokhara, eventually made his way to Kathmandu where he studied uh, theological study. He met his wife, Lakshmi, uh, who had a similar experience actually in coming to faith, was kicked out of her family, is now leading a ministry both in Nyagaon, in the church in Nepal, because as we heard, such a fast-growing church in a country that's predominantly Hindu, one of the big problems is you've got maybe a million believers across this amazingly uh, diverse country, rugged and difficult terrain, very poor country, and a lot of those believers, maybe it's their family who formed the first church in their village, and the church is their household and whoever else comes along. Well, who's the pastor of that church? It's just whoever came to faith first in that family. How do they get educated? How do they get to understand the Bible better? So you have this amazing growth of the church, but the leadership needs to go deeper, and its understanding needs to be developed. And so Grishma has this great heart for sharing with um, Nepali leaders and pastors, particularly from poor and remote communities. So here's a, a sort of a, uh, a training program called Lead Nepal, where they bring together these pastors from remote areas for intensive times of training and prayer and support and resourcing, and then return them to their, um, their churches, their villages, uh, and bring them back again for ongoing kind of mentoring and support. And he does that as well with uh, Nepali communities around the world, because as you probably know, um, how, how many people have met Nepali folk just on the street here in Brisbane? Cafe 63? There you go. So I don't know where that is, but if you rock down to Cafe 63, you'll meet some Nepalis, if you'd love to. Some of the most beautiful people on the face of the earth, honestly, just warm, hospitable, lovely people. Um, and... There are hundreds of thousands of Nepalis living around the world. There are probably over 100,000 here in Australia in total. We met with the um, community leader here in Brisbane. He said there's probably 12,000 Nepalis in Brisbane. So your chances of meeting a Nepali are quite high. Um, if you meet a Christian Nepali, the greeting is Jai Masi, which means victory to the Messiah. Uh, for a non-Christian uh, Nepali, the greeting is Namaste. Um, Effectively, g'day. Christians will do both in public. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But in church, GMSE is the greeting that people use. Um, and so Grishma also has this ministry to Christians around the world. In the uh, Gulf states, where many of them have gone to be laborers, construction workers, domestic help, and so on. Uh, in Asia, he's come to Australia a couple of times to minister to Nepalese communities here. So the growth of the church in Nepal is integrally related to the faithfulness and witness of organisations like INF, who were both sharing words of life, people who'd gone and were able to share good news about Jesus with their neighbours and their workmates and, and their friends and colleagues, but also empowered by practical demonstrations, practical outworkings of the love of God. I... Um, served in Nepal with uh, the other big mission organisation. So it's part of God's amazing blessing that there are two mission organisations who both came into Nepal at roughly a similar time. INF was a little bit quicker off the blocks and then United Mission to Nepal. Uh, so I served 
with United Mission to Nepal for a number of years. And we worked uh, in different parts of the country. So this is part of the cooperation between the two mission organizations is where INF is working, UMN doesn't work um, because we don't want to duplicate our efforts. We don't want to kind of compete or overlap. And INF does the same. And when we were working, I was really struck by uh, a couple of things. We had a, um, a community development program. So INF has a hospital kind of clinical work uh, that you see in the hospital like Green Pastures and that outreach to people with leprosy. But it doesn't just stop in the hospital, by the way. It makes its way all the way to the community. So when somebody with leprosy or somebody with spinal cord injury or cerebral palsy is kind of supported and treated, receives physio and OT in the hospital, actually that's not the end of it. Because if you go back to your home and your village is high up in the hills, far from a clinic and far from a hospital, and you have leprosy, how do you make sure that you can manage your own self-care? How do you make sure that you can check your injuries and make sure things aren't getting worse? How do you know when things are at the point where you need to go and receive medical treatment? How do you manage everyday tasks like cutting firewood, cooking, without hurting yourself um, when maybe your nerves are no longer giving you the sensations of pain? So they go with people and support them and often work with community groups also to overcome the stigma and discrimination that people with leprosy experience. So our medical work flows out also into our community work. I'm just gonna share a community story from uh, my time with UMN, but it's very similar to some of the things that INF does. So UMN was working with a group of butchers in Kathmandu, in a very poor district of Kathmandu. And butchers are low caste by definition because they're slaughtering animals, uh, they're com coming into contact with dead animals, so they are low caste people. So quite marginalised, um, obviously doing a necessary job, but not well respected and not well regarded in their community. And these butchers lived in an area where um, nobody had toilets, so sanitation and hygiene wasn't great. Obviously, that's not a great thing, not just for the community themselves, but if you're a community of butchers handling meat that you're selling to people to eat and you don't have toilets in your community, potentially that's not a great thing for others around you as well. Water supply wasn't, wasn't very regular, drawn from uh, quite old wells that were, um, particularly in the dry months, quite... Um, exposed to higher levels of, of uh, bacteria, so people became quite sick with things like dysentery and cholera. None of that's good. So here's a low-caste community, little access to hygiene and sanitation, um, relatively uneducated, very few children in school because their families couldn't afford to send them to school and couldn't afford not to have them working. And UMN began working with them. And like INF, UMN, when it starts in a community, it doesn't start by saying, okay, we can see all your problems, we're experts from outside, we know how to fix your problems, let's start this program of fixing all your problems for you. Because that would be the most disrespectful, disempowering thing you could possibly do. Because part of the problem is not just a lack of water or a lack of toilets or a lack of education. Part of the problem is that deep disempowerment that these poor communities have experienced for generations. You are worth less than other people. You are ignorant. You don't understand. Just stay where you are. That's the way God has designed it. You should just put up with it. And maybe, because Hindus believe in reincarnation, maybe in your next life, things will be better. Exactly. But UMN goes in, like INF goes into a community, 
And the people sit alongside the community and don't say, we can see the problems. They say, what's happening here? And what would you like to have happen here? And how can we work with you to make that happen? So it's a real partnership, a real engagement. Uh, I'd love to tell you stories of some of the community workers that I've met who are just the most amazing, inspiring people. I'll mention Samjana Shahi, uh, who is a Christian woman in a remote part of Nepal who works in INF's community programs. And if you could just remember her in prayer, so just her name, Samjana Shahi. Her name actually means memory. Samjana means memory or remembrance. Um, if you could just hold her in your prayers, because um, she's just moved. Uh, she lives in the, the district capital of Joomla, which sounds grand, but is just a tiny town of about um, five or 6,000 people. Uh, right out to one of the very remote communities to start work amongst them. And she's leaving behind in her household her adult daughter or young adult daughter um, who's studying and two um, children with profound disabilities who Samjana uh, adopted when they were abandoned by their family. So if you could just hold her in your prayers, uh, I'd really appreciate that. But they would start work with this um, Nawari Butcher community and this process of what do we want to do? What, how do we want to tackle your problems? And the Nawari said, well, we, we know we should have toilets. We know that it's making us sick not having toilets. And we feel it's not good. Um, we just have to find a gutter or a field to go to the toilet. We want toilets. And Newman said, we can work with you to do that. Um, so we want you, the community, to gather the material together to build the toilets. Um, sounds a bit harsh, but... When INF and UMN work, they don't give resources unless there's absolutely no way the community can bring them together. It's one of the great laws of uh, community organising. Never do for somebody what they can do for themselves. And um, so they gathered brick because it's a beautiful Nawari community, lots of great architecture. And there were two families, both um, with people with disability who couldn't afford the brick. And the community came and said, these two families can't afford brick can you buy the bricks for them? And Newman said, well, tin is much, much cheaper. They can build it with tin. And the community said, just tin looks bad. We like brick. Um, and the whole community pulled together and brought extra bricks for these two families. Um, and UMN worked with the community to negotiate with the local government because they had to you know, dig trenches, block off roads, lay pipe, Took them six months to build the toilets, dig the latrines, dig the sewage lines, lay the pipe, and they were just at the point of about to connect it to um, the sewer line. And the local higher caste community who lived around the place where they were just about to connect to the main sewer line objected and used their influence with local government to stop the project. Now, why did they object? I don't know, but my guess is two reasons. If you're high caste, the minute you start thinking, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word poo, is that all right? <laughs> the minute you start thinking about poo, low caste poo, poo from low caste people flowing in under your feet, you feel icky. Now, we tend not to think too much about what happens to our poo after we go to the toilet and so on, but I imagine that was part of it. But another and really profound part of it was... If your position in society is here, 
and you see people below you starting to do better, starting to become empowered, starting to feel like they have some dignity and worth and value and agency, that might feel like a threat to you. What if it means I can no longer tell them what to do? What if it means they start demanding kind of that the government pay attention to them? So they really tried to quash it. It took another year. You men had to negotiate with a whole new government authority, move the pipe and lay it. Uh, it took 18 months from beginning to end and these toilets were finally built. And this low caste community at the end, when they gathered together, they said, now we know we can do anything. It's just, in Australia, that's a bathroom renovation project, right? You've built a toilet and you've connected it to the sewer line. That's it. For these people, it was the start of a transformation, not just of their physical health, but of their whole self-understanding from nobody loves us, we are cursed by God, this, this is our lot in life and we just have to put up with it, to actually know we are loved and we have dignity and respect and if we want to make change, we should try to make change. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. In some cases, that leads to very open evangelistic conversations. Not everywhere, not all the time. But all the time, I believe, it's a powerful witness to a gospel truth that you are made in the image of God and you are loved by God. I know I've been talking for a long time. I'm going to share very, very briefly from Scripture. Paul, as he was going about preaching, planning churches, proclaiming the gospel, he did this other thing. He mentions it in Romans, he mentions it in Galatians, he mentions it in both of the um, Corinthian letters. He was gathering a collection for the poor and needy saints in Jerusalem. Paul was actually undertaking the first Christian aid effort in history. International aid. There'd been a famine uh, in Judea and Samaria. The saints and the people of, of Jerusalem were suffering. And Paul, as he went to the churches, asked them to give, asked them to share whatever they had. He said to the Corinthians, quite a wealthy church, he said, I've just been to the Macedonians and they gave not just what they could afford, they gave beyond what they could afford. And he said, so I'd love to see you do the same. And he brings it back to this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And if you're somebody here today who doesn't yet know the grace, the generosity, the generous act of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, then talk to one of your neighbours, talk to one of the church leaders and ask them to share with you what Christ has done for you. How deep his generous act, how great his generous act for you on the cross was and could be if you receive it. But Paul here is speaking to a group of people who knew it, who'd experienced it. And I think most of the people in the room, right, when, you, when I say, for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, you go, amen, I know it. I'm saved by it. I live by it. And Paul says, as that generous act transforms you, look at what Jesus did. 
He gave himself. Not just a little bit, not just his spare change, not just his spare time. He gave himself, all of himself, for us. And Paul says, I want you to be motivated by that generosity as you share. And I'll skip, read all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9. It's an amazing, uh, amazing couple of chapters. He refers to uh, the, um, the incident of the manna in the wilderness. He says, I'm not saying this to you, Corinthian Christians, to give so that things will become hard for you to make it easier for Jerusalem. He says, I just want there to be a fair balance. The one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little, Paul says. And he's quoting from that story in Exodus 16, the story of gathering the manna. And if you remember that story, when the Israelites would go out in the wilderness, they didn't have food of their own. God would have put manna, laid manna out on the ground and they gathered it. And if you gathered too much, what happened to it? You had enough to eat, but what you gathered and left over, it spoiled. Got rotten with maggots and weevils and whatever. And those who couldn't gather enough, maybe they were sick, maybe they were old, maybe they had a disability, for whatever reason they couldn't gather enough, yet what they had in their home was enough for them. It's this beautiful image of two things, enough for everyone, which I think is God's heart for all, and also an amazing image of actually when God gives us a blessing, if we hoard it and hold it for ourselves, it goes rotten. It spoils. It's no longer a good gift from God. It's something that potentially will harm us. When God blesses us, it's for us to bless others. When God gives us, it's for us to share abundantly, just as Christ has shared with us. And Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, when he's reflecting on what it will mean if the Christians join and share, he says... You will be enriched in every way, chapter 9, verse 11, for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, by sharing in his collection, you glorify God by your obedience to the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. When we are so moved by the generosity of God that we share, not just with our needy brothers and sisters, but even beyond those boundaries, it overflows in thanksgiving to God. The experience of the Nepali church, the testimony of Grishma, I know that is true. I've seen it happening. It continues to happen in Nepal. Um, for all of those who have partnered with and prayed for INF over the years, I just want to say a great big thank you. Um, we really do uh, live and work by the prayers of uh, people in Australia and around the world. So um, thank you. If you haven't prayed for us, please do. I've put a few resources on that table just to tell you more about us and how you can pray for us. Um, feel free to sign up or just take anything from the table that's there. And if you haven't, already chosen how to share some of your resources, whatever it is, with an organisation that serves the poor and witnesses to the love of God both through sharing of words of life and in practical ways that help communities overcome terrible poverty, um, would you consider INF? I think we're amazing. I know I get paid to say that, but I genuinely believe it. And if not INF, 
then I just believe God will put a ministry in front of you where you have a chance to respond to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by living in abundant generosity and sharing with others. So if it's not INF, I just encourage you to be open to the leading that God gives you to find the moment where you can share the blessings God has given you. So thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, for sharing with us. It was excellent, terrific. Just before Barry Payne comes to closing prayer, I just want to share something from the scriptures. This is a song that King David wrote. He said, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. And Nepal is one of those nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and he is to be feared above all gods. You know how many gods the Hindu people worship? Millions. Not hundreds, not thousands, but millions. We've just been singing about we have one God. We have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now God is very much alive as we know. So praise the Lord. Barry, thank you very much. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, and that you are the King of Kings and that you've called us to be involved in the critically important business of extending your kingdom. We pray that we take the challenge of today in terms of sharing our blessings with others throughout the world that they too might be part of your kingdom. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's uh, thank Ben one more time. Please be seated. Please be seated. Um, if you would like prayer for any reason, you want to come to know the Lord Jesus for the first time, well then we're happy to pray with you. If it's some other need, we will still pray with you. We'd love to do that. Otherwise, let's go and have some morning tea. And uh, don't forget to use the sanitizing gel. And more important, uh, put your name to those letters to the persecuted church. Thank you.